Thanks for joining us here at Belgium Community Church. Our current series is called Failure is Not Final. What feels like the end for us can be a new beginning with Jesus. In my lowest moment, what will I find God to be like? In your lowest moment, maybe it's something in the past that you can look back on. Maybe it's something out in the future. But in our lowest moment, what are we going to find about God? A.W. Tozer says that what comes to mind when we think of the word God is the most important thing about us. And I wonder if it's actually what comes to our mind when we think about God in our lowest moment might be the most important thing about us. Because it's the thing that we think about God in that low moment that affects whether we're going to run, whether we're going to hide, whether we're going to lash out in anger and say, no, I'm going to go my own way, I'm going to do my own thing, I'm going to fix this. We're starting a series called Failure is Not Final because this idea that what we think about God in those low moments is is so absolutely critical or else we'll be running around, hiding, covering up, trying to fix things on our own. Whether it's both my story, it's the story of this church, and it's a story that our community needs to hear is that brokenness and failure Those things that we've done and that have been done to us are not things to bury deeply because nobody can see, but it's actually to find out that God actually meets us in that low moment. So grab your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to have the verses on the screen, but you can also grab a Bible from the seat row in front of you. We're going to turn to Genesis chapter 3. What we're going to look at today is what I think is probably the lowest moment in history. The absolute worst moment possible in Genesis chapter 3. See, why, Joe, why is this the lowest moment possible? Genesis chapter 3 is the lowest moment possible because the setting was absolutely perfect. You see, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 lay out for us God making the world, putting humans in a garden, and blessing them. Blessing them above everything else. And it is this, it is at this moment that the drama begins. It's easy to look at Genesis chapter 3 and call it something like the fall. And it's just a story that we know that becomes a story of disobedience. And we like let go and lose the drama of the story. But Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 show, set up a story in Genesis 3 that's as bad as you could ever imagine. This, the, the setting for this drama is this setting of joy and fellowship that we can't even imagine. We've just gotten used to difficulty in life. We've gotten used to shame. We've gotten used to sin and disobedience. So that's just kind of like normal. And we like credit it to this moment and forget that before the fall is a moment of joy and fellowship where Adam and Eve didn't have to scratch a living from the ground. There was no fighting in their marriage. There was no shame and there was no guilt. There was no separation of them from God. Genesis 3 gives us this idea that every evening God would go for a walk in the garden that he planted and Adam and Eve would come along and they would enjoy. So that the story starts with this moment of joy and fellowship as good as you could ever imagine. And then Genesis chapter 3 starts with verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? 
The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will, you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Let's pray. God, as we open your word, help us to hear from you, hear from you your character and your word and your promises to us in Jesus' name. Amen. It's at this moment, Genesis chapter 3, that the crisis begins. A story that starts with joy and fellowship and things are good and no one's scratching a living and there's no shame and there's no guilt and there's no pain and there's no death. The serpent comes in deceiving the woman Starting by just questioning, what did, did God really say this? Stretching the truth. And then Eve steps into his trap and stretches it a little bit further. God said, don't eat from the tree. Don't, he didn't say, don't touch it. Eve's at, Satan starts stretching the truth and Eve starts jumping in to try and protect the truth along with him. Then Eve sees that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Satan stretches the truth. Eve steps into his trap, stretching it further. And then Adam and Eve, giving into the temptations that all of us face for power and for popularity, for provision, takes the fruit and eats it. And gives it to her husband and he eats it. There's a lot that can be said. There have been hundreds, thousands of books throughout history that have been written on this chapter. But what we end up with is a result of the, the worst possible result where Adam and Eve are covering themselves in shame from each other. Remember, there's nobody else to hide from. They're hiding in shame from each other. And they're hiding from God who's going for His daily walk with them. So this, this moment of joy and fellowship in the crisis where Adam and Eve fall where Adam and Eve fail, where Adam and Eve give in and go with this deceiver, ends up with the worst possible result, result, the lowest possible moment in history, joy and fellowship shows up in fear and hiding. Fear and hiding from each other and from God. And so it's at this point that God calls to them, where are you? It's at this point that Adam says, it's the woman you gave me that deceived me. And then Eve blames the serpent. And then there's the famous words where God condemns, curses the serpent. Then he turns to the woman in judgment and he turns to the man in judgment. And then God makes garments of skin for Adam and his wife, clothes them. Then the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to, to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim 
and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This moment of absolute joy and fellowship ends up in fear and hiding. And Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden, driven out of their daily walks with God, driven out wearing garments of skin they'd never worn before. Lots that can be said about this passage, but what I want to call our attention to in this is to pay attention to these hints of grace in this chapter. It can be easy to look and see, oh, look at all the curses. Look at all the judgment. But I want to show you these hints of grace in the passage that call us to cling to the promise, the blessing, and the invitation of God. You see, failure becomes this low moment where we want to hide ourselves. We want to run from everybody. We want to hide ourselves from God and from each other. And we want to outrun what we've done. Genesis chapter 3 says, no, in that lowest moment, cling to the promise, the blessing, and the invitation of God. I want to show you these three actions. First, remember the promise of God. Chapter 3, verse 15. God is cursing the serpent and says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Jews and Christians for thousands of years have called this the first gospel. Genesis chapter 3 has this seed of the gospel planted in it, but what I want you to notice is its placement in the chapter. God has not condemned, He has not judged Adam and Eve before He's made a promise. Before He does anything of judgment towards Adam and Eve, He's already made a promise that one day I'm going to fix this. This is not the end. Here He's cursing the serpent, cursing the deceiver, cursing Satan. And then he says, but, and here's what I'm going to do, Satan. I'm going to fix this. I, you will strike his heel, a wound, but not a fatal wound, and he will crush your head, a fatal wound to you, Satan. Maybe you're like me and you go, how do we know for sure that this is a, like a how do we know that for sure that this is like the first gospel? How do we know for sure that God's saying not just that people will crush snakes' heads? Revelation chapter 12. Verse 9 says, the great dragon, this is speaking of Satan, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. Revelation chapter 20 verse 2 also says that Satan is a dragon. He is this serpent. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan and bound him for a thousand years. The beginning of the Bible sets it up with this serpent, this deceiver. And the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, brings us our attention back to that and points us to the fact that Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 is the first gospel. Saying that God's promise here that one day the seed of Eve will crush the head of our deceiver, our enemy. Romans chapter 16, verse 20 says that God will soon crush Satan's head underneath your heel. Genesis, Romans, Revelation points us to the fact that God, right here at the beginning of the story, before he ever addresses Adam and Eve in their sin, he makes a promise that I will fix this. I will undo this. A lot of people in our culture say that there's a different God between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is an angry God who loves wiping people out, who loves bringing wrath. And the New Testament is this soft, gentle guy like Jesus 
They try to make this division between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. Some cults even just say that there are two gods, an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. And I think there's a Hebrew word for that called baloney. Right here in Genesis chapter 3, right here in Genesis chapter 3, before God addresses Adam and Eve, is he says, I will fix this. Here's my promise. It's not that God one day turns to grace. It's that in the lowest moment possible, the very first sin, God starts with a promise. What we find in the lowest moment for Adam and Eve, what Adam and Eve found in that moment is that God is compassionate, a promise-making God. Imagine being Eve in that moment and Adam totally confused because you've never felt shame and guilt before. And in that moment, they hear the promise of God that one day the seed of Eve will fix this. So the call to you and I when facing failure, those deep, low moments is to remember that God is a promise-making God. Where do you need to hear that? Where do you need to hear God's promise before you hear about judgment? Where do you need to hear that God says, I will fix this? Maybe it's a failure from the past. Maybe it's a disappointment. Maybe it's some kind of, some kind of sin that has dominated your life. You need to be like Eve and hear before judgment comes a promise. God is compassionate. He's not like me who when my children misbehave and get hurt, I get angry and say, serves you right. No, that's not what God says to Adam and Eve in that moment. He doesn't say serves you right. He says, I will fix this Eve. Who do you need to know that needs to hear of this kind of God? Who in your life needs to know that there is a kind of promise-making God who comes compassionately to us in our hurts and in our pains? Who when we sit in shame and guilt because of the things that we've done, He doesn't shake His finger at us, wagging His finger saying, do better. He says, I'll fix this. I will fix this. The first action is to remember the promise of God. Remember the promise-making God. The second action we find in this is to receive the blessing of God. You see, it's legitimate to focus on the condemnation of the serpent, the judgment on Adam and Eve. But I think we miss a significant part of the passage when we don't pay attention to what's actually said to Eve here. You see, Genesis chapter 1, after making Adam and Eve male and female, God says, God blesses them. He says, be fruitful and multiply. It is this great blessing on their life that God pronounces to have children, to raise children, to be little kings underneath God. He blesses them with that. And then we get to Genesis chapter 3. And what I want you to notice is that God curses the serpent and he curses the ground. He does not curse Eve. We, we so often call this the fall and the curse, but he judges Eve, but doesn't curse her. He says, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe, and with painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. But he never takes away the blessing. He told her, he blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. And even in the fall, does not remove his blessing. In fact, he repeats to her that she has a continuing role in her plan. We would expect God in this moment to come to her, condemning her. We would expect God in this moment to say, okay, I need to start with somebody else because you're not good enough. And instead he says, you're still going to bear children. 
you're still, you still have a part of my plan, Eve. And then notice what Adam does. Verse 20. After, after the ground is cursed because of Adam, and Adam is judged, then we find in verse 20, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. Of anybody, in any moment, you would not name her mother of the living. After all of this, all of, all of this judgment, after death and shame are introduced into the world, you would expect her to be named something like mother of the damned. And instead she gets named mother of the living. Eve's, Eve in this moment of great shame and of guilt, yes, she's wrong. She's got a continuing role in the promise of God. She is judged but not cursed. And her name becomes mother of the living. As this promise that God is not done with her yet. One commentator said, as a sign of grace in the midst of judgment, the original benediction is not withdrawn over Eve. We would expect God to take it back and say, forget you, Eve. And instead, he gives it to her and reminds her, it's going to be painful, but you still have the blessing. You still have the same job that you had, Eve. I'm not done with you. One of the most powerful moments in my life was after the death of the church plant in Illinois, or the never even got off the ground, never even launched. And I was hurt and angry and in pain and in shame and chasing some kind of success to make me feel good. I started attending a church across town. And I hated being there. It was painful. It always felt like surgery being there. I began meeting with the pastor. And as he began to we began to talk, and we week after week began talking. He said, failure does not mean that God is done with you. You're 28, and it's the worst thing that you can imagine, but Joe, God's not done with you. And I remember where we were sitting in the Starbucks, and I could hardly even grab onto that moment. I could hardly even grab the truth, are you sure God's not done with you? Are you sure? Because I don't see any way out of this. Honestly, that wasn't the bottom. The bottom was later than when my business failed too. But those words echoing in my ear, God's not done with you. God's not done with you. Genesis chapter 3 in the story of Eve says no matter where you're at, God's not done. He's not writing you off. He's not saying you've gone too far. Sure, there's consequences to sin, but he, Genesis chapter 3 tells us the blessing of God isn't removed. He, doesn't, he hasn't taken the job away from you. God's not done. So you still have a value and a role in God's plan, no matter what's been, no matter what's happened, no matter what's happened to you, no matter how far you've been running, no matter how long you've, you've, you've pressed it down and tried to hide. So today, will you receive the blessing of God who says, you still matter, you still have a part, you're still part of the living and part of this plan. And the third action in failure is accept the invitation of God. The story ends with Adam blessing Eve, God covering them with garments, and then him sending them out of the garden. And what I want you to notice is at the end of verse 24, it says, after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden cherubim. Those are angels and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. It is so easy for us to look at that, that, those, that verse and go, okay, God drove them out and said, you cannot come back here. And that's true. 
these, these angels, these cherubim, are guarding the way to the tree of life. But the rest of the story of the Bible is those cherubim directing the people to a different way to the tree of life. Not just saying you can't go back here, but it, the entire Bible is pointing us towards Revelation chapter 22, where the tree of life is a place of healing for the nations. The entire Bible is not just you can't go back to the garden, it's let's have a better way to the tree of life. You see, these cherubim were put in the tabernacle and in the temple on the veil. They were put over the ark of God. The cherubim guarded the way to God in that tabernacle and in the temple and over the ark. The, these cherubim were guarding. And yet when we get to Jesus' death on the cross and the veil is torn, the cherubim don't guard the way to the tree of life anymore. So Genesis chapter 3 becomes this invitation that says don't look to the garden for a way to the tree of life. Instead, look for another way that God is pointing us. The rest of the Bible is this story of God guarding and then opening the way to the tree of life. It's not just you can't go. It's that come this way. Come to this tree. Come to a different tree. Revelation chapter 22. Verses 2 and then again in 14. Verse 2 says, Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river, stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The tree of life is not barred forever. It's just a different route. It's not back into the garden. It's going to Jesus. 22 verse 14 says, Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to go to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. And you're like, Joe, what does that mean? How can I have rights to go to this tree? This story of the Bible that starts in Genesis 3, God is king. We have all sinned, turning our backs and saying we will live our own way. And yet this promise of God carried through the Bible is that one day the seed of Eve would crush Satan's head. The Bible says that that happens in Jesus' life and in his death on the cross. Jesus living the life that we should live and dying the death that we should die so that all who turn from sin and trust in Christ can come and eat from the tree of life, living forever in fellowship with God so we have a better garden than Adam and Eve ever saw. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates His own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8.1 says that there is now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so this, this, this story of the Bible is an invitation from God to come and eat from the tree of life by taking Jesus. So will you do that today? Will you do that today? Say, I want, I want to eat from the tree of life. I will accept this invitation no matter what I've done or how where I've been. I will take Jesus then there's no condemnation. Failure is not final for those that are found in Christ. Again, there is, now there is no condemnation for those who are found in Christ Jesus. If you want to take Jesus, will you come and grab me after the sermon while we sing? Will you say, Joe, I want to hear more about this. I need to know for sure that the promise of God is for me. The blessing of God is still on my life. That the invitation from God is still for me. And then for the rest of us, whether we're dealing with 
memories of failure or fears of failure in the future. We can know for sure that the promise of God is for us. The blessing of God is for us. The invitation from God is for us. And what changes? Imagine what that's like in a house where there's no condemnation. One person in that house is clinging to the promise, the blessing, and the invitation of God. I know that for so many of us, the deepest hurts of our life have come at home. But this story tells us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That we can be free from those fears and from that shame and from that guilt. But then more than that, we can be the kind of community transformed into the image of the Father that promise-making, blessing, inviting God. Imagine what good news that is for Belgium and for Port. What kind of good news that is for Oostburg and for Cedar Grove. What kind of good news that is for Random Lake and for Adel, for Cascade. For there to be people who are transformed into the compassionate, promise-making, blessing, inviting God. In those communities and the people in them, can be transformed. That is the picture of the Bible as that swells and grows in our region and in the world. Because nobody else is going to say that. Nobody else is going to go around saying failure is not final. Nobody else is going to say nobody's too far gone. But we can. We can do that in Bosnia and in Japan. We can do that in our neighborhoods. We can do that in our homes. And then the world becomes changed. These promises and these blessings and these inviting. We learn that failure is not final. And then we picture that into the world. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you that you loved us first. We thank you that there is no division between Genesis and Revelation. That you are a God who comes to us with promises and blessings. and invites. Thanks for joining us for our series called Failure is Not Final. Please connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and BelgiumChurch.com.